1: Hello, I'm Laura Landon for the New Books Network. The late French thinker Jacques Ellul wrote that many modern people are hungry for a sense of meaning that their church, village, or family once supplied. For them, today's meaning increasingly comes from the mass media, powerful engines of commercial, political, and technological propaganda. A recently revised Canadian book on propaganda looks at the ideas of thinkers such as Jacques Elul, and it traces the history of propaganda, analyzes propaganda techniques, and raises ethical questions about it. The book, Propaganda and the Ethics of Persuasion, was written by Randall Marlin, a professor of philosophy at Carleton University in Ottawa. For the last 34 years, Randall Marlin has taught a course called Truth and Propaganda, he started it after studying with Jacques Ellul in France. The New Books Network visited Randall Marlin at his home in the leafy Ottawa neighbourhood called The Glebe. Our interviewer is Bruce Wark.
2: I'm wondering uh, why you wrote this book about propaganda.
3: I wrote the book about propaganda because I felt that I had um, that there were many... Valuable and interesting things to be said that were not widely enough known. And uh, the book would be useful also in my course to consolidate uh, the many things I'd learned over the years, teaching this course called Truth and Propaganda. How long have you been teaching that course? I I, um, taught the course since 1980, so that makes it 34 years I'm teaching now. I had won a uh, Department of Defense uh, fellowship uh, to study with Jacques Ellul back in seventy nine eighty, And I haven't looked back. I got uh, tremendously enthused with uh, my uh, uh, discussions with Jacques Ellul and listening to his, uh, the courses he gave. And uh, it just uh, sustains me through all these years, um, applying his ideas and communicating his ideas and my own ideas uh, to uh, the successive generations of students.
2: Well, let's come back to Jacques Elo because uh, I, he is a real presence in your book. Uh, but first, before we, we go there, I wanted to ask you why it is important to study propaganda.
3: Well, if you don't study propaganda, you don't uh, know how it may be affecting you and undermining your autonomy. I think Jacques Ellul, his mission in life was to help people become free. And when you are uh, governed by images which have little to do with reality, but are creating a, a false picture, the false pictures of commercialism, or militarism or national overweening pride, uh, if you live in these uh, with these pictures, uh, you tend to be cowed by those people who make use of these images to dominate you, and uh, One of the most interesting contributions Jacques Ellul has is his definition of propaganda which uh, he defines propaganda as manipulative communication for the purpose of gaining power or maintaining power over others. Now, that's, uh, this is the essential idea of Elulis, to link propaganda with power. And unless people understand uh, how propaganda works and how they may be um, under the power of others through uh, the use of propaganda, they're not going to be free.
2: In your second edition of your book, I see you have a little photograph of Colin Powell holding up uh, a vial of anthrax at the United Nations. Um, how, did, how does the example of the American invasion of Iraq illustrate some of the propaganda and some of the threats of propaganda that you
3: refer to? Oh, this is so very interesting. I, in my course, I, I bring in Aristotle. Because Aristotle, when he's talking about rhetoric, uh, talks about one of the main motivators to get people to do things is fear. And so in order to get war going, the most important thing, uh, the, 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 the way to do it uh, that is, has shown itself to be successful uh, over millennia is uh, to make people afraid. Uh, And fear is, he defines now, getting Aristotle again, and fear he defines as uh, uh, getting people to think of some particular awful thing that could happen to them at a particular time in a particular place. And so what uh, the Colin Powell holding up that vial sort of uh, uh, engraved an image in people's minds whereby they think of a particular thing like uh, anthrax being uh, uh, sent to them at a particular time, very soon if they don't do anything, by a particular person, Saddam Hussein, uh, in a particular place, namely the United States, with these uh, alleged uh, some alleged delivery system, which he didn't have, of course. When Iraq finally admitted having
0: these weapons in 1995, the quantities were vast. Less than a teaspoon of dry anthrax, a little bit about this amount this is just about the amount of a teaspoon less than a teaspoonful of dry anthrax in an envelope shut down the United States Senate in the fall of 2001 Iraq declared eighty five hundred liters of anthrax but unscom estimates that Saddam Hussein could have produced twenty five thousand liters if concentrated into this dry form this amount would be enough to fill tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of teaspoons. And Saddam Hussein has not verifiably accounted for even one teaspoonful of this deadly material. Uh,
2: In fact, the slogan of those times was weapons of mass destruction, WMD. To what extent do you think that was an effective uh, use of uh, slogans by the Bush administration?
3: Weapons of mass destruction encompasses a lot. Uh, besides anthrax, which is one way, um, there is also nuclear weaponry. And you would have alongside uh, the chemical weapons of mass destruction, you'd have uh, the expressions by Condoleezza Rice uh, and others. We don't want the smoking gun to become a mushroom cloud. <laughs> so, so it was uh, all combined to give... Uh, tremendous um, sense of fear uh, and support for the United States to do something over there before something terrible happens over here like 9-11.
0: The danger to our country is grave. The danger to our country is growing. The Iraqi regime possesses biological and chemical weapons. The Iraqi regime is building the facilities necessary to make more biological and chemical weapons. And according to the British government, the Iraqi regime could launch a biological or chemical attack in as little as 45 minutes after the order were given. The regime has long-standing and continuing ties to terrorist organizations and there are al-Qaeda terrorists inside Iraq. The regime is seeking a nuclear bomb and with fissile, fissile material could build one within a year.
1: From Propaganda and the Ethics of Persuasion by Randall Marlin There are occasions when it is right to be alarmist about propaganda. Experience in 2002 and 2003 with U.S. President George W. Bush and his administration's propaganda leading to the disastrous war in Iraq gives us ample reason for worry today. Without solid evidence, accusations that Iran has been pursuing a weapons-oriented nuclear program have currently been treated as accepted fact by mainstream media, including Rupert Murdoch's The Times of London and The New York Times. Sanctions have been implemented against Iran and stronger sanctions threatened, with Iran responding by counter-threats. There are some alarming similarities with the pre-World War I highly propagandized environment, with the important difference that computer-assisted modern warfare may allow little or no time for populations to curb war-provoking decisions of their leaders. Renewed brinksmanship, supported by propaganda, brings renewed fears of war by miscalculation. We have a strong incentive to prevent such miscalculation by recognizing and countering the propaganda that makes such situations possible. Hence, an important incentive to examine propaganda in its many dimensions.
2: In your book, you highlight the contributions of two uh, prominent thinkers. We've already mentioned Jacques Ellul, and we'll come back to him. But you also spend a few pages on George Orwell. What did Orwell contribute to our understanding
3: of propaganda? His contribution to propaganda theory relates to his uh, careful analysis of words and how words can, uh, can really uh, deceive us. And you get this very nice analysis in 1984 of duck duck speak and uh, where he looks at uh, all the the, the ways in which, and we see it all too often today, the ways in which things are named in a way that is very confusing. Well, I I think in terms of Canada, we have a bill named Lawful Access, and that sounds so good until you realize what it's all about uh, is uh, what is now prohibited by law, becoming lawful by passage of a new bill. (laughs) (laughs) That is to say, surveillance of us and uh, uh, things that they can't uh, do, they will achieve by having a bill passed with the name Lawful Access. These are the kinds of things that Orwell pointed out so much so that Orwellian has just become an adjective that everyone recognizes as distortive language.
1: From George Orwell's 1946 essay, Politics and the English Language. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan, can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face, and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, Political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine-gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them."
2: Randall Marlin, author of the book Propaganda and the Ethics of Persuasion, second edition in 2013. How did the second edition differ from the first one that came out earlier in the 2000s? One of the um,
3: biggest things, um, one of the biggest uh, cases of propaganda with the greatest effect took place beginning in the year, um, in August of 2002. And August of 2002 is when the first edition came out. So I didn't have uh, any opportunity of bringing in all the propaganda that the Bush administration used to uh, start the Iraq war. You can see the real propaganda build-up starting in August of 2002. And I just missed all that because I, my book had just come out. <laughs> so I had to do a, a second edition. I took a, a long time to do the second edition. Writing a book is a big job. And uh, having just got through one, I was not anxious to um, to get the other one done right away. So um, it did take me time, but all these years I've been teaching, uh, it increasingly became obvious uh, that there was a need for a second edition. So that's one, one thing that was the reason why I had a second edition. There's also, I think, my biggest contribution in the way of actually... Ferreting out information that is not commonly known was my study of the corpse utilization plant story, which was probably the most gory and uh, incriminating story at the time to demonize the Germans uh, in the First, in World, the first War. World War. First World War, and this story came out. I-, I should say that there were the story had been told before, but the story was given huge authentication by. Uh, what appeared to be admission by German authorities that they were involved in boiling down their own dead soldiers to make useful chemical products such as uh, glycerin or or um, uh, fertilizer or bones meal uh, a whole lot of uh, different things there was these supposedly these factories around that were doing this, and the big the big um, deception was that there were factories that were involved in rendering animals, but the animals were not human beings. The animals were horses, of which there was a plentiful, plentiful supply of dead horses in World War One. Masses of horses around killed by machine gun fire. And... Uh, So the Germans, being uh, inventive, would um, uh, 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 find a way of making use of the materials in these horses. Now, one one thing I did not discover until after the book had come out was that the German word lime means glue, L-E-I-M, it means glue. And they had translated that in English as lime, L-I-M-E, Now, lime is used to disinfect corpses, human corpses. And so uh, by translating it as uh, lime, you don't think of horses in the way that you would if the product was glue, because back in the days, in those days, uh, I remember as a kid, back in the 40s, you still talked of the glue factory, a horse going to the glue factory. The two were very much... Uh, Together in one's mind. So it shows that there was a deliberate attempt at that time to deceive the world uh, about the nature of these corpse utilization plants. Reuters um, news service sent the story around the world. It had incredible legs. And a colleague of mine has just documented all all of this uh, in a book uh, that's just come out. It's a book on the Corpse Factory story. And uh, he's gone much further than I have. Um, But just coming back to your point, my motivation for a second edition, this additional bit of information I could add to the story that I did not catch capture it in uh, the first edition.
2: Now, <clears throat> the, you give the corpse uh, factory story as an example of atrocity propaganda. Yes, tra- yes. And and why would uh, that story be so effective? What is it about
3: this corpse story oh. uh, that would... Demonize the Germans. Okay, well, you have to realize that uh, cremation has come to be accepted much more recently, and it was not accepted back in those days. So, that the idea of just uh, of of the idea of burning um, uh, people uh, corpses was already be be bad enough. But the idea that you would use the materials uh, for boiling uh, people down would, was just uh, horrifying to, to make, uh, as, as rumors went on later, lampshades or uh, uh, to make soap was another one that makes soap out of uh, your, your, your soldiers. I mean, you had to be ghouls to do that. And, and uh, so the Germans are ghouls became a slogan. It was one of these slogans to demonize the German people. They had to be absolutely awful to do this kind of thing. And uh, the Frankfurter Zeitung at the time was absolutely outraged by this, that the, uh, Amer- that the uh, British would result to such dirty propaganda, really dirty propaganda, they were outraged, and uh the the feelings that um, uh, were created in nineteen seventeen and going on until nineteen eighteen uh, i think were partly responsible for the harsh um, treatment of Germans after the war and uh we also it also may have have had the effect that uh because in nineteen twenty five uh the story uh, was recognized to be a hoax uh they uh, later on, when World War II came along, uh, people were reluctant to believe the stories about uh, the gas ovens for the Jews. So it had a, a lingering effect, this uh, the, the, you know, once bitten, twice shy, that people would not believe some of the stories, and this time they were true.
1: You're listening to an interview with Randall Marlin, author of Propaganda and the Ethics of Persuasion. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
2: The other important thinker in your book, we've talked about George Orwell, and we've mentioned Jacques Ellul, but who was Jacques Ellul, and what did he do
3: that uh, uh, influenced you in this book? The first book I read of his was The Technological Society. And in that book, you have the thesis that man is losing control over... Uh, technology, and the technology has formed its own uh, self augmentation system and Now you have to understand by technology he does not mean um, the kind of things that govern engines or, or um, other forms of technology in that sense what he 's talking about is technique that 's the French word for this, and when he 's talking about his technique he 's including not only the the technology as we understand it he 's also uh, talking about uh, a system of technique where we're talking about ordering of human beings uh, through management techniques. We're talking about uh, techniques of control. And when you look at all the different techniques, then you see that there's a technique of communication, uh, which you could assimilate under propaganda. There's these techniques of communication that will have us buy things that um, maybe we don't really need. We're in this consumerist society, where uh, where things are not governed simply by what we want, but at least as much uh, by what they want us to want. <laughs> right. yes. So, so uh, uh, in that way. Uh, to To fulfill the increasing demands of the new uh wants that we have uh, you have a proliferation of new techniques and one the each technique uh, brings and technology brings with it um its 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 own disadvantages, but the self augmentation aspect of technology tells you that uh, there is a solution to all these uh disbenefits of technology namely if you find technology getting um uh d- driving you nuts well we have a pill for that <laughs> and if there's side effects for the pill well we have new treatments for that too and uh and so it goes on so you have this uh, this phenomenon that has huge ramifications and that it really uh, taking away our human freedom and that's why I get back to what Elul is all about, is making us aware of the extent to which we're imprisoned in uh, a uh, society of technique that um, we have lost control over.
2: And that requires generous amounts of propaganda to keep us
3: persuaded. Well, yes, uh, propaganda. Uh, also, uh, at the governing level, you have um, armies of uh, persuaders, lobbyists uh, who are very busy, um, along with the PR firms and the propagandists who are uh, – yeah, I mean, Eisenhower, as everyone knows now, uh, warned against the military-industrial complex, or today they talk about the military-industrial surveillance complex. And it's out of control, as um, Edward Snowden has showed us. Yes. Now, for Elul and many, and you, you
2: too, many other propaganda theorists, propaganda can be distinguished, if I'm correct, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, by the fact that it appeals primarily to emotion and not to rationality.
3: Well, I, I, th- I think that's uh, true in a broad sense, but for Elul. Propaganda can at least take the form of rationality. It doesn't have to be – you don't have to do this um, tear-jerking or um, emotional thing at all. You can do it with facts and figures that are deceptive because they're either – not really uh, seen uh, in in terms of what they mean, but only in terms of an impression and that's that's not really rational, but he calls it rational propaganda because it's in the form of rationality, but um, uh, that's uh, distinct from those forms that are irrational and based on on myth and recognized uh, more or less uh, as such uh, so uh, it's one of the favorite forms of of propaganda today is to give uh, statistics. But the statistics can be based on false categories um, or they cannot be announced uh, at all. Uh, The lovely... Um, uh, Conrad Black um, ran newspapers and he was against separatism in Quebec and he published a survey uh, that showed that the uh, people were against um, separatism in Quebec. And then in his uh, autobiography, A Life in Progress, he says, well, we didn't say that the survey in question uh, consisted of myself and six other people in in our newsroom. (laughs) so so uh, uh, I love uh, Conrad black for his, his his mischievous honesty there but uh, because it saves me a lot of research t- um, to prove that these surveys are biased when somebody admits it up front like that so uh, he's uh, but that's the idea that uh, survey after survey um, can can be uh, shown to be biased either in the nature of the wording of the question. Um, or in the uh, methodology used to get the answers, or in the tabulation of the answers, or in the interpretation of the tabulations of the answers. There's all kinds of ways in which what looks like rational um, and solidly evidential material is actually highly tendentious and biased. But sixty-five percent of people, we can then say, believe this, yeah. even though the
2: survey was designed to get that.
3: Yeah. Well, yes, and I, I, I love there's a uh, Doonesbury cartoon where, where, uh, where um, uh, the person is uh, exp- expressing skepticism about uh, polls. And uh, the, the, the 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 pollster responds, "That's nonsense. I, we have a poll showing that ninety nine percent of the people believe in polls, <laughs> and, and, and this convinces the the skeptical person. <laughs> it, 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 it's that kind of mentality."
2: Yeah, I remember as a kid watching a commercial that I still remember because it was so um, triumphal in a way. It was about Ivory Soap, and the announcer would say. And- yeah,
3: 99 and 44, 100% pure <laughs> and then it floats <laughs> So the purity and the floating yeah, we, we won't talk about other kinds of things that float yes.
2: Randall Marlin, your book is called Propaganda, but it's also about the ethics of persuasion yes. and you have quite a lot to say about the ethics of persuasion in your book um, w- what do you feel about propaganda and the ethics of persuasion?
3: Well, I think uh, uh there's, there's there's so much to be said about this. Um first of all, uh this is a big change in the second edition of my book. And that is that I've um in the in, in the first edition of the book, I I say I talk about propaganda as having two definitions that are rooted in our English language, and that you cannot fold one into the other without misleading people. There are well-established two definitions of propaganda. One is neutral and the other is negative. Uh, the neutral one treats propaganda as an instrument. It's persuading people, uh, and that can persuading people can be good or bad, depending on what it is you're persuading them of. In my definition, um, I tend to go for the other aspect of propaganda, which is something where where something is manipulative or underhanded, where the communication is not straightforward. It's not transparent. You're hiding something. Um, I love uh, a quote, and this didn't make it into the first edition. I'm very sorry about that, but it's a quote from G.K. Chesterton, where he said in 1909 in the Illustrated London Times, he uh, he said, the blackest of all lies is not, as Tennyson said, the half-truth. The blackest of all lies is that which is a complete truth, but so selected as to give a false impression. You know, he uses the example of, uh telling the man in the moon about the uh, planet earth and and telling them about only about scorpions and south african millionaires the example i use today i got from a, a colleague in university of alberta now uh and and the the example he is he talks about is um yes um i saw my bank manager today and uh he was sober And uh, that uh, suggests, of course, that he was drunk most of the time. Uh, So that's a way of of, uh, innuendo, of of implying things that are not actually stated. So now we find in
2: political campaigns, both in the United States and now in Canada, a a use of a lot of, not only during the campaign, but outside of the campaign, a lot of what is called negative advertising. Um, How... Do you view negative advertising in terms of the ethics of persuasion?
3: Negative ad- advertising—it can be an absolutely awful thing because um, uh, it's hard for uh, political life is a hard life, and uh, you—it's a—you have to be dedicated to your work if you're going to be um, to do what you're supposed to be doing in public life, and to uh, attack people who are going into public life. I'm talking now about the uh, not uh, advertisements that point out uh, things that are legitimately pointed out. I'm talking about things that go into for innuendo, character assassination, the kind of misrepresentations that you sometimes get that uh, are are really uh, contributing to a false image of people. I I actually have a picture of one such thing in my my, uh, book, uh, a picture of um, Barack Obama. And uh, just before the election, they have a picture of a police car and a a very chagrined face on Obama. And it has to do. The story is about his his aunt illegally being in uh, the United States. Well, only at the at the very end of the story do you see that this is not a criminal matter. But people seeing the police car there and looking at the picture of Obama, they get the uh, impression that uh, this is another O.J. Simpson. we're dealing with here. (laughs) And and it's very negative. It's a combination of um, AOL, American Online, and uh, uh, Associated Press. The story is Associated Press, but the picture is on America Online. And really, although the um, uh, Associated Press comes clean with the fact that uh, this indicated to the reader that this could be um, a story just released at this particular time to discredit uh, o- Obama. Uh, nevertheless, um, instead of taking the attitude that this has no place just before the election and we, it would be irresponsible to spread this story, uh, they nevertheless spread the story and they should uh, I'd be faulted for that.
2: Why is Michael Ignatieff back in Canada after being away for 34 years? Is he interested in people like you? No, instead he brags that he's horribly arrogant, a cosmopolitan. And while away, the only thing he missed about Canada was Algonquin Park. With such a focus on his own success, he's not in
0: it for you or for Canada. He's just in it for himself. It's the only reason he's back. Michael Ignatieff, Just Visiting.
3: I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message.
0: Running for governor, Mitt Romney campaigned as a job creator. I know how jobs are created. But as a corporate raider, he shipped jobs to China and Mexico. As governor, he did the same thing, outsourcing state jobs to India. Now he's making the exact same pitch. I know why jobs come and why they go. Outsourcing jobs. Romney Economics. It didn't work then, and it won't work now.
1: You're listening to an interview with Randall Marlin, author of Propaganda and the Ethics of Persuasion. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
2: Now, uh, finally, um, the last question I want to ask you about concerns, uh, and you discuss this in the book, and uh, we've been talking about a consumer society, uh, a pair of propaganda concepts that Alola introduces, the propaganda of agitation, Versus the propaganda of integration, could you talk about the propaganda of agitation and what it is, and then we'll look at the propaganda of integration, which perhaps is a little harder to recognize as yeah. propaganda.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think this is perhaps. Well, this is one of Elul's most important contributions to the analysis of propaganda, the sociology of propaganda. He divides um, uh, propaganda up into um, four pairs, four pairs. On the right-hand side, uh, in the way I draw it up, is uh, is all the things we don't think of as propaganda, but are propaganda in his view. On the left-hand side are all those things that that uh, people would recognize as propaganda. So, uh, if we go down this, we start off with the propaganda, uh, political propaganda on the left side, which everyone recognizes as propaganda, but then sociological propaganda that is not deliberate. And this kind of thing would, eff- would relate to things like the American way of life or the French grandeur and the sort of grandeur of France. The thing is that. People absorb the latter, these beliefs about superiority of your own nation, uh, without anyone deliberately trying to foist uh, that on you. But um, it, uh, it nevertheless is there, and it relates to another term he uses called pre-propaganda. It's there, a kind of um, a myth that's, uh, that uh, takes over a large part of your um, thinking, so, uh, on the, if we follow that down, after political propaganda um, uh, versus sociological propaganda, you have propaganda of agitation, which is again something we'd recognize where a revolutionary demonizes the czar and uh, works in separate groups to uh, to get people. To understand uh, what's wrong under the Czarist regime or whatever regime you're under and that um, is different from propaganda integration where for example you you try to inculcate a sense of identity within your group, and that's uh that 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 brings people together. And it's not quite as easily manipulable, although it, it, it is manipulable, but not uh, in in the same direct way to action. It's more, it's slower. The same as sociological propaganda. It's, it, it's slower, and this takes us to the next category, which is vertical propaganda, which is top to bottom, uh, and and people can see that when you have uh, Hitler directing all the art, uh, directing all the information. Goebbels directing the information. Uh, but that's different from horizontal propaganda. In horizontal propaganda, it doesn't go from top to bottom so much as it goes from a uh, group leader to members of a group who feel that they're educating each other. Propaganda, uh, uh, The horizontal propaganda, which involves many, many groups of maybe 20 people with a group leader, uh, the group leader has, supplies the information to get people thinking In the way that the ultimate propagandists want them to think. So it's much more like, it appears much more like education, but it's still propaganda because it's still uh, ultimately uh, um, uh, there is an aim of the party to get people to believe certain things. And the last one is irrational propaganda, which we recognize, but then there's rational propaganda, which I've already described. And so all of these together are uh, Elul's contribution. To um, uh, propaganda, but there's one other very important aspect of um, of Elul's uh, contribution to propaganda theory, and that is that um, propaganda will uh, relies on uh, the propagandees' need for propaganda. That, that that we have to say that there's a, a need for propaganda. Why? Because in, especially in a democratic society, you want to be thought to be responsible. You want people to think that you're well informed. And so, um, but you don't have time to be well informed. It's too much work. It's too much, too hard. So um, instead of doing what Elul did with his circle, they would um, analyze the papers and get uh, um, and talk about them. Um, instead, uh, people will go for a kind of Fox News presentation, which is simple. They can understand it. They can relate to it. And furthermore, that's what most—that's what a lot of other people are looking at too. So you have this constant reinforcement, an echo chamber of of a simplified view of the world.
2: Yeah, and which um, <clears throat> people will tend to watch Fox News if that's uh, aligns with their beliefs, or watch some other channel if if. They're more liberal. Uh, yeah, so they, they want they yeah. want uh, the propaganda.
3: Yeah, well, they want something. that They want to be thought well of. Uh, there's there are a few people who enjoy being contrarians. Uh, they are, they exist um, and uh, they're not going to be affected. But the the great majority of people prefer uh, to live like sheep <laughs> and graze peacefully. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and in fact, Elol says, uh, we often celebrate uh, all of the information we have. There's more information in one edition of the New York Times than th- they learned in years and years in the Middle Ages. And yet Elol says the propagandist thrives because there's so much information.
3: Yeah, so much information that... It- is not understandable. That's the point, and so they, uh, you know, you know. So people are confused. People are very confused, and in a society, especially in the post-industrial society, uh, where people are, they've they they've lost the family ties that the or church ties that used to give them a sense of identity. And a lot of them feel like individuals floating around uh, without having an identity. And so they're looking for an identity, and something that will give them an identity is very much uh, uh, prized. Well, thank you very much, Ronald Marlin, for taking the time today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for asking me uh, all these um, really uh, stimulating questions. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Randall Marlin, author of Propaganda and the Ethics of Persuasion. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.